pray. Amen. Amen. Praise the Lord. Hope Ottawa is such a joy, uh, such a powerful time of worship. So thankful uh, for these precious moments that we have together. Let's get right to it. Acts chapter 3. Acts chapter 3, verses 11 to 26. If you do not have a Bible in front of you, no problem. Our ushers are coming right now. Just put your hand up and they're going to put a copy of God's word in your lap. And it's on page 531 of those Bibles that we are handing out to you right now. Page 531. And uh, here we are continuing on in our series through the book of Acts called To the Ends of the earth, verse by verse, line by line, through this beautiful book. Now, recall the main theme of Acts is witness. Comes right here, Acts chapter 1, verse 8. You'll see it on the screen. So Jesus says this, he's commissioning the disciples, moment before he ascends to heaven, he says, But you will receive power. That's, that's not just like, hey, power to kind of get by that day. That's like dunamai power. That's where we get our English word dynamite from. Dunamai power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be, I love this promise, you will be my witnesses. Those who are unafraid to proclaim the message of Jesus Christ, which is the gospel, the good news of the person and work of Christ, you will be my witnesses in, here we go, Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. There's our commission. And then Jesus, he ascends to heaven. Now, you may hear this commission. If you are saved in Jesus Christ here today, let me make something clear. This is not just the commission for the disciples in the first century. This is the commission for every follower of Christ now in the 21st century. We are called to be witnesses. Now, you may hear that. You may hear this command to witness, and you may feel intimidated. Let me just put it out there. Have you, has anyone else but me ever felt intimidated about sharing your faith with someone before? Just put your hand up nice and high. Anyone? Anyone? Sweet. We can't lie. We're in church, loved ones, okay? Come on. The rest of y'all should have your hands up too. All right, here we go. So everyone's been intimidated at some point. How's that person going to respond? Will I know the right words to be able to say? What, what will this mean for my job or for my Family, well, I got great news for us. If you're feeling intimidated about witness, it's the title of this evening's message. Here it is. God has a plan. Amen? God has a plan for our witness. And here in our text, we're going to see that God has a plan, but he's had a plan for the salvation of souls before even time began. God's got a plan, and it hasn't changed. It's never changed. He is working it out. Everyone say that with me. He's working it out. He's working it out. God has a plan, and he's working it out. And here's great news. Because he has all authority and is completely sovereign, he can't be stopped. Amen? He cannot be stopped. And this plan will be just as fruitful and effective today as it always has been. No matter how culture comes against it, no matter how hard or hostile a person seems to be against it, it will not fail. He's working it out. 
and he'll bring it to completion. So what's the plan? What's God's plan for salvation that we are to be witnesses of? Here it is. Jesus. Big idea for our text today. You'll see it right there on the screen. You get nothing else out of this sermon, you get this. Jesus is God's plan of salvation. Jesus always has been and always will be God's plan for salvation. And here's what that means for you and I. We must believe in him alone, in Christ alone, for salvation. That's the plan. Seems so simple, doesn't it? It's not fancy. It's not flashy. It's Jesus. And there's, therein lies the problem. We face a problem each day, and that problem is our unbelief. We look around, and one of two things happens, maybe both. We often doubt God's plan. We doubt God's plan of salvation is effective. Well, maybe that worked in the first century with the apostles, but do you see what's happening in culture today? Do you see the, the hardships that our youth are facing in the schools? Do you see all of the other things and the corruption that is going on around us, the redefining of the image of God in the life of people? You see what's happening? Is it really still effective? And, we, and as a result, we start to doubt God's plan of salvation. We start to depend on ourselves, don't we? Anyone ever started to depend on yourself to try to change someone's heart? Every time you doubt whether you're going to have the right words, you're starting to depend on yourself. We doubt God's plan, and we make ourselves the plan. That's not a good, everyone say, not a good idea. It's not a good idea. We don't think it's effective anymore for the culture we live in. Or here's the second thing that happens, and we do this every day. We believe that salvation can be found in other people, other things or other so-called gods and religions. There's people here that I don't know. Love to meet you after the service. Maybe you're here and you're thinking salvation can be found in another name of a god. That's a lie. There is one name salvation is found in. There's only one plan God has for salvation, and that is the name of Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, God Almighty himself, the author and giver of life, the holy and righteous one. Amen? The Lamb of God. And so the result of our unbelief, one of these two things, what happens? We water down the gospel. We water it down. We start to depend on ourselves, try to use other means to bring people to salvation. You ever think, well, if it's just fancy enough and we'll just kind of Oh, that'll convince them. And if we just do these really cool lights in the service, that'll bring them in and all this stuff. The plan hasn't changed. There's one plan. And the result of us shifting our dependence off Christ to ourselves is faithless and fruitless witness. Faithless and fruitless witness. And so here in our text today, we're going to see clearly God's only plan for salvation of souls. That will always prove true, will never come back void, and that we are called to believe in and proclaim 
to the ends of the earth. Ready to go? Let's stand to honor the authority of God's word. Acts chapter 3, and we're going to read verses 11 to 16. Peter speaks in Solomon's portico. Acts chapter 3, verse 11. Let's go. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people. Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead." To this we are witnesses, and his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. Hear the word of the Lord and all God's people said, amen. Great passage. Let's go. You may be seated. God's plan of salvation. We see it right here. It's power. The power for salvation is in one name. One name. Only in the name of Jesus can you be saved. Here's where everything starts. Only in the name of Jesus can you be saved. Will you believe that? That's where it starts. Because if you don't believe that, nothing else matters. And maybe that's where some of us are at tonight. I think my salvation's in my job. I'm going to believe that. What happens when you lose your job? My salvation's in my bank account. Take a look at the stock market lately. How's that working? Salvation is only found in the name of Jesus. Will you believe that? Here our context, it's 34 AD, first century, and it's 3 p.m. at the temple in Jerusalem, and a miracle has just happened. Peter and John have been at the beautiful gate. Here, we'll put it on the screen here. Here's the temple. That circle right there in the middle, that's the beautiful gate. That's where this miracle has just happened. Okay, close up. Here we go, next one. Close up. Next one, there we go, and there it is, the beautiful gate, close-up view, all right? And so this is where this miracle has taken place. And remember, from Acts 3, 1 to 10, Peter and John were just going up to the temple for prayer, and they see this lame man, this beggar, who has been lame for, he's over 40 years old, and he's been lame for his entire life. He's never walked one step in his life. So what does he do? Peter and John are walking up there, you just imagine the crowds, Right? Thousands of people coming for prayer. He's sitting there at the gate. He reaches out his hand. He asks Peter and John for money. But instead of giving him a handout, this happens. Go back to chapter 3, 6 to 10. Here's our context. Peter says, this man's hand's out there. He says, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Awesome. What does Peter do? Verse 7. He takes him by the right hand, and he raised him up, and immediately this 
lame man's feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple. Can you just see this? There's the temple. He's entering the temple and he's walking. He's leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God, and they recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple, asking for alms. That's charitable donations. And they were filled with wonder and amazement what had happened to him. So that's what's just happened. This crowd is thrown upside down. They are astonished in wonder and amazement. And so now in verses 11 to 16, as we just read, as this man is clinging to Peter and John, thousands of people in the temple are running toward them. They're like, what? Because they saw this guy. He's been there every day for 40 years. They've seen him. They recognize him. Now he's walking. They're running to Peter and John. And Peter and John moved to a place, you notice in the text, a place called Solomon's Portico. You'll see, there it is right there on the screen. That's on the eastern side of the temple. And a portico is just like a porch. It's a covered area where people could gather in the place to be protected from the weather. Jesus often taught there, if you remember from the book of John. And you see in verse 12, seeing the, peop- the crowd's response, Peter steps up. It's time for his second sermon. First one was in Acts 2, remember? Here's the second one. He preaches the second one to declare what happened to this man. And he says, verse 12, go to the text. Notice what he says. Why are you staring, looking at us as if by our own abilities, we made this guy walk? He's like, why are you looking at me? Why are you looking at John? Because the crowd's like, whoa, you did this. You did this. He says, it wasn't us. It was the power of God. That brings up a great point. Right here, eyes up here. When God uses you, oh, you know where I'm going. Uh, You know right where I'm going. When God, out of his mercy and grace and kindness, decides to use you to show his glory through as his witness, who do you really want those people to see? You've been around this church for a while. You're like, well, for sure, I want them to see Jesus. Okay, is that what your heart is saying? Or is it like, I like the acclamation. Yeah, I did that. I was the one who, it was my hand. my, My hand did that. Who do you want people to stare at? Let's just get real before the Lord. Notice verse 13. Peter says, the God you all know did this. The God of, notice how he contextualizes the sharing of the gospel. This is fantastic. He contextualizes it for his audience. See what he does there? Phil, thousands of Jews. He says, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The God of our fathers. He says, I'm a Jew too. He's contextualizing it. See what he does? He brings it in there like, oh, yeah, that's our God. That's your God. Wait a second. He's, he's gaining an audience here. Context is key. He says, God's done it through his son, Jesus. Now that he's established the commonality, he says, God's done it through his son, Jesus. This Jesus, verse 13, go to the text. Notice the stinging indictment Peter gives here. The stinging indictment of the entire crowd. Look what he does. He says, this Jesus that you, circle how many times he says you. 
He says that you delivered over. That means you handed Jesus over to death and that you denied. The word denied there means rejected. That's two. And then verse 15, that you killed. Stinging indictment of guilt. He's just pointed out their guilt of their sin that led Jesus to be nailed to the cross. And news flash for us today, eyes up here. That's not just the guilt of the Jews. That's the guilt of everybody in this room. It's our sin that put him there. That you killed. That you delivered over. And that you have rejected. We are guilty of that. And then you see in verse 16. I love this verse. Highlight it. Memorize it. This man was healed through faith in one name. Faith in the name of Jesus. Now here's what Peter's talking about. The faith that was given to Peter to perform that miracle through Jesus. There's no indication that this lame beggar ever comes to faith in Jesus Christ. He got healed. He's given praise to God. Maybe he was saved. There's some indication there. But the Greek structure is talking about the faith that God gave Peter to perform the miracle by the Holy Spirit through Jesus. See, and Peter sums it up. Here's what Peter's saying. The power to save is found in only one name, the name of Jesus, not me, not John, not anyone else, not other so-called God, no other name. So let's get some clarity here. The name. What is he talking about? The name of Jesus. When you mention someone's name, you're talking about everything that is true about that person. The character of that person all that that person is and all that that person does. So when he says the name of Jesus, he's talking about the person and work of Jesus. The name of Jesus. And you may say this, who's Jesus? I love this. This is one of the greatest Christological passages in the entire book of Acts. Tune in. Who's Jesus? Who is he? There's so much distortion out there today. Lord, help us with some clarity. Peter answers this question right now. He says, the name of Jesus, here it is. You'll see it on the screen. Write him down. Jesus is the servant of God. Jesus is the servant of God. Go back to verse 13, the start of it. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers glorified his servant, Jesus. Jesus is the servant of God. Now, interesting, interesting, amazing, actually. The word servant there that Peter uses is the same word for servant that is used by the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 52 and 53. Look what it says. Isaiah 52, verse 13. Behold, this is God speaking through the prophet. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. It means Messiah. He shall be high and lifted up. And shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so much. He's talking about the crucifixion. He's talking about how Jesus was pummeled for you and I to pay the penalty for our sin. To the point, it says, his appearance was so marred beyond even human semblance. And his form beyond that of the children of mankind. Surely he, verse, chapter 53 of Isaiah, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. And yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. Verse 5, but he, the servant of God, Jesus Christ the Messiah, was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed 
for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And here's great news. With his wounds, for all who turn to faith in him, with his wounds, we are healed. God's plan of salvation. Isaiah prophesied that 700 years before this moment. 700 years earlier that God would send his servant who would come and be rejected and pierced and crucified. But through his death, we could have peace with God through salvation and repentance of sin by faith in him. Jesus is God's plan of salvation and you must believe in him to have it. But that's not all. Peter says who Jesus is. Did you catch it? Go back to verse 13. Not only is Jesus, the name of Jesus means Jesus is the servant of God. Here's another one. Jesus has been exalted by God. He's been glorified. Go back to 13 again. God of Abraham, God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant. The Greek glorified there means exalted to the highest rank. See, after Jesus died, God raised him up. Go to verse 15. You'll see it right there. Raised him up by the power of the Holy Spirit. You see the whole trinity there? God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Fully God, three in one. One God, three distinct persons. He raised him up by the power of the Holy Spirit. And Peter, notice the text, verse 15. Peter and the rest of the apostles were witnesses to his resurrection. They put their fingers in the scars of his hands. You cannot deny that. And after Jesus ascended, God exalted him by giving him all power and authority and honor in heaven, where he's now seated at the right hand of God, ruling and reigning over all. Behold the glorified servant of God. Behold God's plan of salvation. But he's not done. Next one. The name of Jesus, the servant of God. He's been exalted by God. He is the holy and righteous one. The holy and righteous one. Go back to 13 again and 14. The God of our fathers glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. What does that mean? Pilate knew Jesus was innocent. Even a Roman governor knew Jesus was innocent and committed no sin, no crime. Verse 14. But you denied the holy and righteous one, and asked for a murderer. Remember, they asked for Barabbas. You asked for a murderer to be granted to you. The holy and righteous one there means pure and sinless and innocent before God. When Jesus came to earth as fully God and fully man, he lived a perfect life of obedience to God the Father. Never sinned once. He never sinned once perfect sacrifice, and went to the cross to pay the penalty for our sin, the suffering servant of God. And he's not just a man. Jesus is not, look at his name. He's not just a moral teacher. He's not just a prophet, as other religions will claim. He's distinct from everyone and everything else. Why? Because he's God. Jesus is the Messiah. And notice what this means. The holy and righteous one went to the cross, pure and spotless and sinless on our behalf. Here's what it means. All these other religions in this world, here's what they say. Do, 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 do to earn your righteousness. Do, do, do to be accepted before God. You know what what Jesus says? Done. Done. 
You can't earn your righteousness before God. That's impossible. He says, I went to the cross to pay the penalty for your sin. I am this perfect, spotless, sinless lamb, the holy and righteous one. Done. It is finished. Because Jesus has paid it all for us. One-time sacrifice. Behold God's plan of salvation. Behold the beautiful Savior. But he's not done yet. The name of Jesus, he's the servant of God. He's been exalted by God, defeating death, exalted back to glory. Holy and righteous one. And notice this one, I love this. Verse 15, he's the author of life. Peter goes on. And you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. Author there, Greek for author means the divine originator, the giver and the sustainer of life. What does that mean? Both physical life, Colossians 1, 15 to 20, and spiritual life. He's the only one who can grant spiritual life, Acts 4, 12. And as such, of course he could heal this guy. Like, think about this. I was thinking about this in final prep this morning. How many of you remembered to breathe last night while you were sleeping? Anyone? Just put your hand up if you think that was you. Maybe don't do that because then everyone would know that you don't know what you're talking about. (laughs) How many of you actually consciously said, okay, I have to take another breath now, and now, and now, while you were sleeping? Anyone? Oh, well, who allowed you to breathe? Who gave you every breath and pump of your heart? Who's the only one who kept you alive so you could get out of bed and have your breakfast? And by the way, who kept your cereal bowl together so you could put the breakfast in the bowl? He's the sustainer. If Jesus said that bowl's a puddle, it's a puddle. If he said, I'm not going to sustain your shirt on your body, embarrassing. (laughs) Jesus is not just the giver of life, he's the sustainer of life. Who keeps the planets in their orbit? Who keeps your chemical synapses firing in your brain? Do you know, I used to teach science, by the way. I used to be a science teacher in high school. Do you know how many thousands of chemical synapses are shooting across your brain right now? Who do you think's firing all of those? And if one misses, there's problems. You think that was dust? Jesus is the author of life, physical life, and spiritual life. Of course he could heal this guy. He gave him his legs. In fact, Jesus healed this guy. Love this. Jesus healed this guy, did this miracle to show the truth of who he is and to give us a glimpse of what eternal life would be with him. No more pain. This is a glimpse of the coming kingdom for all who are saved in Jesus Christ. No more pain. No more paralysis. Anyone just done with sickness besides me? I'm just done with sickness. Yeah, yeah, so done. Yeah. All who are saved in Jesus Christ will not know sickness when he comes back. There's no more suffering. That's what it's pointing to. As one commentator just so clearly put it, apart from Jesus, there's no life. 
Only in the name of Jesus can you be saved. Will you believe it, though? That's where it starts. And if you're here and you've never confessed Jesus as your personal Savior, just make it so clear if you haven't seen it already. There's no salvation apart from Jesus. You can run to all this stuff. This world. Go ahead. And I'm just going to ask you, how's that working for you? Is that giving you the deliverance you want, the healing you want, the peace you want? Really? Staying in the rat race? Okay. Try that. It's a dead end. I've been there. It's a dead end. Will you believe in his name? And brothers and sisters, here's what it means for us. If you really believe this, will you proclaim his name? In truth, in love, and boldness, the name of Jesus in your workplaces, in your homes, in your neighborhoods, to your classmates, students, on the bus. Here's one, social media. Here's, that's a big one. Here's, a, here's my challenge to Hope Bible Church Ottawa in terms of social media. Only, commit to only proclaiming the name of Christ on your social media for this week. Not your name. Not how clean your house is. Not how cute your kids are. Not what lessons you're teaching them this week. The name of Jesus is what changes lives. Not our self-glory. No watering it down, loved ones. Not trying to make it more attractive, but proclaim it by faith in his name. And here's where it all starts. Lord, increase my faith in your name. Amen? Pray that right there. Lord, increase my faith in your name. God's plan of salvation, its power is in one name. And with this, here's what this means. If it's one name, it's exclusive. There's one path. There's one path, one way. And what's that? Repentance. Repentance is God's path for salvation. You say, how can I, have salva- how can I be saved in Jesus Christ and have eternal life and be forgiven of sin? Repentance. Question, will you repent and believe? Look at 17 and 18. Go back to the text. And now, brothers, Peter goes on to preach, I know that you acted in ignorance. That means moral blindness. As did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of his prophets, that his Christ would suffer, has thus been fulfilled. See, Peter goes on to say that even though the Jews and their leaders were ignorant to the truth about Jesus, they were blind to it, they were still responsible as you and I are for our actions of rejecting the Messiah. That God revealed was his Christ. Notice verse 18, his Christ, exclusive. See, Jesus is the Messiah that God revealed to them through the mouth of, notice the text, all the Old Testament prophets. That they, the the Old Testament that these Jews claim to know so well and they've missed it. See, here's the key we see right from these two, te- two verses. Jesus was the fulfillment, end of verse 18, fulfillment, completion of all those prophecies. He is the exclusive Messiah sent by God, the only one God gave. And there's, here's what this means. There's no such thing as Jesus and my good works will save me. There's only one exclusive Messiah. It's not Jesus and... These other gods, just to have my back so I know I'm secure, as so many religions believe. Mm -mm. There's an exclusive Messiah. It's not Jesus and my success at work, Jesus and my church attendance. Should we be attending church and not forsaking? Yes. Does it earn you salvation? No. Exclusive. Jesus plus nothing is everything. And then look at 22 and 23. Go down. Go down to the text. Let's read. 
Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers, and you shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. 23, and it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. Notice what Peter does here. Again, context is key. He contextualizes it. Why? This is the prophecy from Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 15 and 19. Peter takes them back to the Pentateuch again. And this was written approximately 1,430 years earlier before this moment. 1,430 years. Who wrote it? Moses. Why did he choose to use Moses? Because Moses was revered as the Jewish people's greatest prophet. They were like, Moses is God. They revered him. They hung on his every word. And Moses prophesied that another prophet, notice the text, another prophet would be raised up like him and they must listen to whatever, that, look at the text and hear the warning. They must listen to whatever this prophet, Jesus, would tell them. Why? Because of the warning of verse 23. Did you catch it? If they don't listen, and by listening means like, hey, I'm going to come in and hear his teaching and then just go do my own thing. Uh Uh-uh. Listen means to hear and obey. If they don't hear and obey him, they would be destroyed. That means cut off and lose the blessings of salvation. There is so much at stake. And just hear the word of the Lord. I want to be very sensitive on this. I want to be very loving and very clear. If you reject Jesus as the Messiah, you will be destroyed. It's just clear. You will lose the blessing of salvation in him alone. And he is coming soon. There's so much at stake. And if that's not enough evidence, Peter goes on to say, look at verse 24. Let's keep reading. And all the prophets, it wasn't just Moses. It wasn't just Isaiah. Now look what he does. And all the prophets who spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaim these days. See, he says it wasn't just Moses who prophesied about Jesus, but so did all the Old Testament prophets from Genesis on. All of them prophesied about the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And a side note here, side note, loved ones, this is why every time you come to a service here at Hope Ottawa, we will preach Jesus Christ from the text because all of it points to him. It's called biblical theology. All of it, creation, fall, redemption, consummation, the biblical storyline points to Jesus. I love how one pastor said it so clear. Jesus is the center of it all. It's always, only, ever been about him. And this is why one of my favorite preaching quotes, Charles Spurgeon, he said this, No Christ in your sermon, sir? Then go home and never preach again. Charles Spurgeon, Prince of Preachers, go home and never preach again until you have something worth preaching about. That means until Jesus is back in the sermon. Because it all points to him. Isn't it scary to think you'd be 
teaching the Bible and missing Jesus? You're left with moralism at that point. So how are we called to respond to the truth? Here's the truth of who Jesus is. It's path one way. How are we called to respond to the truth of Jesus as Messiah and who we are as guilty before God? Look at verse 19, and I pray this is just an adrenaline of hope into your life. Peter says, here's how you respond to who Jesus is. Repent. Repent, therefore, and turn back. How do we call to respond? Repentance. What does that mean? You'll see it on the screen. Let's make sure we're clear. It means this, a change of attitude about sin that leads to a change in direction. Repentance is a 100, it's like I'm going this way of sin. I love my sin. I'm going to keep lusting. I'm going to keep idolizing. I'm going to keep going after my self-glory. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. And then repentance, like change of attitude about sin. That's wicked. That is separating me from God. I'm turning from following that, and I'm following him. There's repentance, true repentance. Not, I want to get out of my consequences, so I'll try the Jesus thing for a while. It's, I'm broken over my sin. I need the Savior. Repent. Turning from sin, turning towards God. Hey, question. Repentance is God's path for salvation. Will you repent and believe? That's the only command out of this text. Repent. It's the imperative. Here's what happens. You say, what's the big idea of repentance? What happens through repentance? Oh, watch this. Through repentance, three things. Get your pens ready. You're going to be burning up pages right here. Get your, get your pens ready. Through repentance, there's removal from sin. That is total forgiveness. Go back to verse 19, right out of the text. Repent, therefore, and turn back. What? That your sins may be blotted out. That means totally and completely removed or wiped out. It is the picture Peter uses here, the picture of wiping away ink from the surface of a document. In ancient writings, parchment would be used. Parchment would use ink with no acid in it to write on it, so it didn't absorb into the paper, it didn't bite into the paper. So it just laid on the surface, so you could easily wipe it off. Here's a modern-day example. It's called a whiteboard. Modern-day example. That your sins may be blotted out. Through repentance, you are forgiven for every sin. Get this. True repentance in Jesus Christ. You will be forgiven for every sin you've ever done, you are doing, or will ever do. In a moment, you will be forgiven. Because all that sin, remember Isaiah 52 and 3, was laid on Jesus Christ, on your behalf. And now, God sees you through the lens of his son. He who knew no sin, Jesus Christ, became sin for us, you and I, so that in him we would become the righteousness of God. You know what that means? Sin's wiped out. This says lust. Anyone struggle with lust? You don't need to put your hands up. Lust. You know what that means? Through repentance in Jesus Christ, wiped out. 
fear. Fear of man. Fear of failure. You know what that means? No longer are you bound by that fear of man. Jesus' blood wipes that out, and God sees you as having a perfect fear of the Lord as his son did. Now that struggle with lust, through Jesus Christ, God now looks at you. You've been given his righteousness, and he sees you as walking in perfect purity. You have the purity of Jesus given to you. Here's what else this means. Harshness. Anyone struggle with being harsh with your words? Do you know harshness is a sin? Here's what happens through forgiveness. Sins are blotted out through repentance. And God looks at you and I. As if we now live with the gentleness of Jesus. Having the same gentleness that he spoke with. Here's another one. Corrupt speech. Gossip. Complaining. Negativity. Slander. Anyone? Mm Mm-hmm. Through repentance in Jesus Christ, we receive the righteousness of Christ. That sin is wiped away. And God sees us as having the purity and truth of Jesus on our lips. Selfishness. Anyone struggle with selfishness? Through repentance in Jesus Christ, that sin is wiped away, blotted out, and now you are seen as having the same generosity as his son Jesus. This is called the atonement. This is called the doctrine of justification. It's not only the forgiveness of sin, it's being given positionally Christ's righteousness. Here, anyone struggle with unforgiveness? It's easy to, right? I do at times. Through repentance, the Lord blots it out, wipes it away, and now he sees us as having the same forgiveness that his son did. Staggering, isn't it? Positionally righteous before God. Pride. Anyone struggle with that? Through repentance. That sin is blotted out. And God looks at us and sees the perfect humility of his son. And we are declared before God. He takes all those things, blots them out, and we are declared righteous. Behold God's plan of salvation. That's awesome doesn't mean we can go live how we want now, guys. It's like, well, God sees me as pure. (laughs) Sweet. I'll just go do my own thing. No, no, no. The awareness of what Jesus has done and our growing love for him and the Father, we don't want to pursue a life where the glory focuses us. We want to turn from that. Do we still need to repent and get ongoing cleansing? 1 John 1, 9? Yes. 
we're positionally righteous before him. One day, the presence of sin will be removed completely. It's called glorification. He sees you through his perfect son. Let me ask you a question. Jesus took the wrath and punishment for all those sins. Um, have you received forgiveness? Are your sins blotted out through the blood of the Savior? And if you have, if you've made that decision to follow him, you're not living under condemnation of sin anymore. God's wrath is not towards you. But here's the thing. Are you living like you've been saved? Or are you still sitting under shame and guilt and trapped in the snares of fear of man and the unknown? It is for freedom that Christ has set you free. Don't submit again to a yoke of slavery. That's the first thing repentance does. Wipes away total forgiveness. Second thing, go to the text, verse 20. Refreshment of soul. Guess what happens when you're cleansed from sin? It leads to refreshment of soul. Look at 20. That time, repent that you, therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. That times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Times of refreshing. The word refreshing there means times of relief, times of rest, times of renewal. Here's what it means. Times of revival. Times of revival. The picture there, Peter used, it means to breathe easy again. Everyone go like this. Okay, pens down for a sec. Here, here's what it means. Breathe easy again. Just go like this. Times of refreshment from the Lord. See, here's the key we need to understand. You don't get refreshment without repentance. There's in that order for a reason. See, our sin is what keeps us from resting in the Lord. It hinders our relationship with him. And yet through repentance and the salvation through Jesus that is given through it, the, notice the text, the presence of God himself, the Holy Spirit is given to you and lives in you. And you are filled with living waters of refreshment and revival as you turn to him. Anyone feeling like so dry and weary, they need a refreshment of the soul. Times of refreshment will come. Repent and turn back. You look at all throughout the Bible. Look at Proverbs. It says, sin makes the bones rot. It makes you weary and dried out. Refreshment comes through repentance. We get glimpses of rest and refreshment now. But one day all saved in Jesus will know it in full in his presence for eternity. And here's something we can't miss. Put it on the screen, team. The path of revival always runs through repentance. You want to be refreshed in the Lord? It starts in repentance. So when you're feeling like dry and worn out, you're just feeling beat down, you're feeling this, the first thing we need to go is, Lord, is there ongoing sin in my life? Humble ourselves before him. He will not bless our pride. So where do you need to repent so you can be refreshed and revived? Loved one, stop wearing yourself out. I struggle with this so much. There's so many miserable Christians living in sin and not repenting of it. Just miserable. But God will always draw near to the broken. 
And if you're here and you've never confessed Christ, you're trying to wear yourself out or trying to earn salvation, just stop it. Hear the word of the Lord. Repent and be refreshed. Lastly, we see here, through repentance, there's the removal of sin, there's the refreshment of soul, and then there's the cosmic impact, the restoration of creation. Look at 20 and 21. This is amazing. 20 and 21. So that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, that he may send the Christ appointed for you. Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. See, Peter says that through repentance, all of creation itself will be restored when Jesus returns. He's kept in heaven until that time. He is in heaven waiting to return. And through repentance... There's a cosmic restoration. Notice verse 21. Heaven must receive him. That means he must remain in heaven until he comes back to restore all things. How? How does this happen through repentance? Because, oh, get this. Let this fire you up for your witness this week. When the last has heard the gospel, when those appointed for salvation are all in, the last hears the gospel, repents of sin, confesses Jesus as Lord, the mission is done and the end will come. The last will hear and the end will come and all will be made right. All will be made new. All will be restored. You say restored to what? Here it is. To creation's state before the fall when there was no sin in the world. A new Eden. And if you're wondering about this, Romans 8, 18 to 25 is beautiful description of this. This is, all, this is what all creation groans for, including you and I as part of it. Groaning for restoration. No more pain, sickness, viruses, corruption, sin, fear, anxiety. Ugh. Loved one, will you repent and believe? Without salvation in Jesus, you will never experience this. You will not know the new creation if you're not saved. You will know, in love I say this, the exact opposite. You will know eternal hell where there is nothing but weeping and gnashing of teeth. But for all who repent, there's restoration coming. And you will know the removal of the presence of sin for eternity. Does that fire you up to witness believers? You know, you know, it hit me. You know, one of the biggest reasons that we're so often apathetic in our witness, loved ones, is because we're so content to live apart from the physical presence of Jesus in the new creation. We're so content to live in this world with all its sickness and death, and we've lost the longing for the physical presence of Christ and the new Eden that is waiting. So we don't witness. We're so filled with the world. We're so content to live apart. Who has God put around you to proclaim Jesus to? Look at what happens. Why would you wait? God's plan for salvation, its power is in one name. 
Its path is one way through repentance. And behind all this, last point today is this. We see that salvation, its work, is from one God. One God. Salvation is God's work from start to finish. Here's our challenge. Will you witness by faith in him? 25, 26, we finish out. You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. See, Peter finishes by reminding the Jews of the covenant, the promise of God that he made to their father Abraham. It's called the Abrahamic covenant. You can read about it in Genesis 12, 1 to 3, or Genesis 22, 18, where God promised Abraham that all the families of the earth would be blessed through him. And he would make Abraham the father of many nations. How? Verse 26. God would raise up his servant, the Messiah, Jesus, to bless the Jews first, and then every tribe, tongue, and nation. Right? Verse 26. God's plan of salvation right there in that Abrahamic covenant. How? By turning. Notice 26. Who does the turning of the heart? Who draws to salvation by turning every one of you from your wickedness to him? See, look at the incredible truth. You'll see it on the screen. God made the promise of salvation, and only God draws the people to salvation. That's good news for you and I. God made the promise, and only God draws the people. Only God turns the heart. God made the way. God gives the faith. Salvation is God's work from start to finish. Will you witness by faith? It's not up to you to save. Today, this should give us great confidence in living as Christ's witnesses, knowing our role is not to save, but to sow. In the power of the Holy Spirit. Let's stop putting pressure on ourselves, church. Let's stop putting pressure on ourselves to do what only God can do. There's only one God. Humble yourself. Ask him for his faith and power and go forth boldly, declaring in truth and love God's marvelous plan for salvation this week. It's power, one name. It's path, repentance, trusting in the work of God and the authority of Jesus over the lives of those he's called you to. Eyes up here, God has a plan. God has a plan. His name is Jesus. The fields are white. Let's go. Let's go, church. Here's what we're gonna do. I'm gonna call the worship team up here because you can't hear a text like that and just stay here. It, it calls for a response. And so what we're going to do, the worship team's going to come up. Joel's going to sing, <coughs> sing this song over us, and then we're going to join him. But I want us to take this time right now to get real with the Lord. How many of us just need to get real before the Lord and say, God, I repent. For some of us, We're walking away from him and rejecting the Messiah and say, Jesus, I confess I'm a sinner. I see my guilt and you're the savior. I need you. I ask you to be my Lord and I submit my life to you. And you will know refreshment and salvation from the Lord. And for those of us who have made that decision, we need to come before the Lord right now and say, God, I need to turn from that. Where's that harshness? Where's the impatience? Where's the lack of love? 
Where's the pornography? Where's the lusting? Where's the idolatry? I just, I'm gonna bring it onto you. I need to be refreshed in you. Help me to live as though I have been redeemed and justified by your blood in your power. How deep the Father's love for us. And so Lord, as we go to this time of prayer and as we hear this beautiful truth of how deep the Father's love for us. You loved us so much, you sent your only Son to die for us. And so, Lord, I pray we get real with you and get right with you right now. That there would be refreshment and forgiveness and restoration. There would be salvation. Lord, have your way in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's go to the Lord right now.